The High Power Hangout is a podcast that promotes and supports firearms, sports, and firearm safety. I do not support crime, negligence, illegal actions, or misuse of firearms. Always treat every firearm as if it was loaded, point them in a safe direction, and never put your finger on the trigger until you intend to safely fire and always be aware of what's behind your target. Discussions on this podcast, write-ins, or guest appearances are not responsible for your actions or inactions as a result of content covered in the show. Do not use reloading data from the show without working up from a considerably more conservative charge and slowly working up until a safe load can be obtained. Good afternoon, evening, or whatever it is, wherever you are. Welcome back to the High Power Hangout. I'm JP, and today is Tuesday, October 17th, 2023. And we have some good stuff to talk about today, including the continuation of the Elysio saga in a results rundown, a quick word from our sponsors, and how about a new segment that lets me include some of you and your feedback. Sit back, relax, and enjoy today's episode. Let's get moving. All right, everyone, welcome, welcome, welcome. Whether you're listening on the way to work, trying to muster up some late season motivation on the way to the range, or listening on two side-by-side speakers in the back of a beautiful blue and white freight hauler, it's great to have you here. A lot has happened since our last episode, and keeping track of it all has become somewhat of a part-time job, and I'm going to do my best not to jump around. I want to say another quick thank you to everyone for listening and all the support, and especially those who have shared the High Power Hangout with other shooters on the range. We're a fairly close community when it comes to shooting sports, and the word of mouth is huge. So again, thank you. I'm not NPR, and this podcast is not supported financially by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, nor viewers like you. And I promise never to ask any of my listeners for financial support just emotional support. And thank you for all the emails and messages that come through my inbox throughout the week. It's been fun getting to know everybody just a little better and also getting some good back and forth going. Chances are, if you make a good point, even if I don't agree with it, it'll probably make it on an episode because, well, people deserve to hear both sides of the coin. Let's close up some loose ends here with a few housekeeping items. Do you ever make a change in your processes, whether it be reloading or shooting technique or maybe even something non-shooting related like the route to work you take and then later wonder why you made that change and then realize the original way was actually better? I was corrected politely by a listener named Mark who was listening very closely to one of my past episodes. And Mark pointed out that my timing of weight-sorting brass cases in the initial processing of new brass was being done at the wrong time. The moment he started talking about it, I realized I had made a wrong turn at Albuquerque. Mark had mentioned that he heard me say that I had been weighing cases before doing all that excessive stuff like uniforming and deburring flash holes, trimming, deburring, and chamfering cases. Well, that was correct. I did say that, and that was the way I was doing it recently. He then made a really important reminder that it made way more sense to do it as the final step in the process rather than one of the first steps. Well, daggum, that's how I had been doing it for the first few years, and at some point started doing it totally differently without even thinking about it. Where did I make that wrong turn? I have no clue. Anyway, Mark said that case sorting by weight should be done after making the cases as uniform as possible, whichever method that may be. Why would you weigh them if they're not uniform to begin with? That makes sense to me. And why did my simple brain start doing it the other way around? 
This is why I don't do important things like finances or firearms when I'm fatigued from work. I do dumb things, which is probably what happened here. Either way, thanks Mark for stepping up and mentioning this. You are correct. And thankfully, I've only done it with a few small lots of brass, and I'm sure I can't shoot tight enough for it to make a difference anyway. But that does leave me with a new question. What's the case weight difference that's going to make an impact on target from shot to shot? In other words, maybe my Starline 223 brass weighing 101.5 to 102.5 grains, so one grain difference, isn't going to make much of a difference shot to shot if I go from the extreme ends of the weight differences. But what if I spread them out, say, three full grains, or maybe even five? At what point would it start making a big difference on target? Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not going to go load up a bunch and find out, but I am curious if anybody's tested this because it would sure save a lot of time. And I'm becoming more and more inclined to maybe stop weighing cases for the 600-yard line. Speaking of brass prep, what are your off-season plans? What do you have to do before the next season kicks off? What goals do you have? What is the plan? Are you a big batch-style reloader? Maybe you have 4,500 spent cases to process and load up for next year? Are you looking forward to dry firing and bumping your offhand scores up a bit? Last week, somebody showed me a photo of somebody's indoor offhand setup for dry firing. It looked a little excessive, but, you know, kudos to that guy or gal for trying to tackle what gives them the jitters and standing. I don't judge. Whatever your plan is, though, unless you're in the warmer climates of the South, it's time to get that plan in motion. I'm darn near in Canada country up here, and the thought of getting things ready for the winter season has been looming over my head for the last few weeks. Personally, I have a few things that need to happen, though. All of my brass from the 2023 season has already been processed, since I usually process it the day I get home from each match or the day after. I do have a few thousand Lake City once fireds that need to be fully processed, and I'm not sure if I'm going to do that, though, especially after bulk purchasing some Starline. The thought of going to human resources to onboard a bunch of brass is making me want to vomit. Now, believe it or not, I've considered sending off a few hundred pieces to a brass processing center to see what it looks like. In other words, how will their processing stack up to mine? Not necessarily in quantity, but in processed case dimensions. What I'm looking for is do their cases match up with mine well enough that I could mentally ignore the differences in the cases? How is the headspace match up? Are they bumping back case shoulders far further than mine? I can compare that with my new Starline brass, so that would be a pretty good benchmark, I guess. Are their cases trimmed to the same length that I do? Are the necks expanded to the same dimensions? Just a minor difference here would drive me bonkers. I mandrel my brass to 0.2220 on a mandrel during every resizing cycle. If I'm sending off the brass, I really don't want to have to resize the necks again. Anyway, I've heard great things about one or two of these companies, so I may give them a go. I'm a pretty picky person and anal retentive when it comes to these things, so if I decide to give it a shot, it'll be with a limited batch. However, if you have good things to say about one of these brass processing groups, please let me know via email, jp at hphpodcast.com. 
Well, 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 that's three wells. We've reached the point in the podcast where we get to continue the Elysio saga. In today's results rundown, we get to cover some load testing, four matches, and a follow-up on some items. And spoiler alert, in less than five days, I'm going to be down to a whopping one breed of service rifle, and that is an M1 Grand. Where we left off. Back to the 3rd of October, I had a 6BR UMRS match rifle that had a sticky bolt lift. And bolt closed, now that I think of it. The headspace checked good on cases that were stiff, and the load wasn't overly spicy, albeit a touch on the warm side, and I couldn't find the difference in the brass that was sticky versus not sticky. So I was left with little option other than testing some lighter bullets in new brass and see what happened during my Tuesday league match from the first week in October. So I loaded up 87 grain Hornadies under various charges of Varget in brand new Lapua brass or Lapua, however you say it, for some load testing. I had to test those loads in the morning, but also needed those Hornady 87s for my rapid fire string in the match that was right after my load testing session. It was load up at home, test the 87s, and then the match a few hours later with randomly charged Hornady 87s. So kind of going in blind on the league match ammo. On recommendation for another shooter, I loaded up these at 30 grains of Varget under Hornady 87s in once fired brass and some in neck turned brass. I thought maybe that the neck turning would eliminate another variable in a sticky bolt saga. Well, in testing out of those various loads, miraculously, the 87 grain Hornadies performed spectacularly at 30 grains of Varget. No bolt rays or closing issues, smooth feeding, good groups, bingo bango. Considering that's what I'm blindly loaded up for the match in a few hours, I was happy as a clam. Then I headed into the match. And how'd the rapids go? Sticky bolt Again, sticky, sticky, sticky. I just don't understand it. I'm using the exact load that I just ran in testing a few hours earlier, which had no bolt issues, and both neck turned and unturned brass had the same amount of force required to run the bolt. Now I've become officially frustrated. After the match, I decided to go home and start measuring as many dimensions of the brass that I could. Between unfired brass, fired brass, and resized brass, I checked out the average headspace, outside diameter of fired necks, shoulder dimensions, and the web area just above the extractor groove. While I didn't find anything wildly out of sorts, I did learn from a few people that there are some tolerances of the 6BR system that are extremely tight. Prime example here, the web of the case. While I'm measuring most cases to be around 0.469 or 0.4695 just above the extractor groove, I found some to be 0.470 if I hold my micrometer in a certain way. My new brass all measured 0.469. Most of my resize was 0.469 and a few of them measured 0.4695. The fired brass was mostly 0.469 as well, with the occasional 0.470. So I reached out to some of the hashtag 6BR Mafia to see if there's any feedback that I might be missing. The overall theme from their feedback was, try backing down the load. Some felt fairly strong that my load was way too hot. Okay, I'll take that into consideration, 
But in my defense, my load was the way it was because in the load testing, it gave outstanding groups and great standard deviations and had performed well in last fall's mid-range matches. I saw no pressure signs and it matched up to the loads and velocities that most of my counterparts were also using in their 6BRs. Some of those folks also seem to think that maybe all my brass at this point was likely scrap metal. One listener sent over an interesting fact about the .470 measurement at the web of the case being the point of no return. Once you blow out that area of the case to .470 inches, you can't go backwards. Or if you can squeeze it down, you'll have to re-squeeze it each reloading cycle and start working the brass down way too thin at the web meaning the brass has started to flow away from that area and it's creating a very thin weak spot just above the extractor groove. Ever had a case head separation? Sort of like that, with possibly more dangerous results. Okay, you have my attention there as well. And a thanks to John Audis for sending over some example photos of Lapua 6BR, Norma 6BR, and Norma 6XC cutaways to give me a good visual of the brass profile by the web. Now I did find a small based 308 die to see if I can squeeze the base down just as an experiment, and it seemed to make the problem worse. Worse? How could squeezing the base down smaller make it worse? That answer still eludes me today. What I did was take a few cases that were sticky on the bolt after resizing, and then run them through the small base die. When I tried those cases in the chamber, the bolt wouldn't even start rotating downward. I checked the specs of those cases and couldn't find the offending dimension. That one's a head-scratcher. Well, I have a lot of data to work with, but a lack of experience to put it to use. I figured it'd be time to give Gary Alicio another call. I'm sure he's already sick of hearing from me about my hangfire situation with my 223 setup, but if I'm going to get anywhere, maybe I can provide him with the data I've gathered and see if he can help me make a determination on what could fix the bolt stickiness. The next day I got in touch with Gary and he indicated that in reality nothing I was doing was really unusual. We talked about the load, the sizing process, the brass specs, and he seemed to indicate that everything should be working like clockwork. He offered to take a look at the barrel and see if something was out of whack somewhere in the chamber. Maybe it was a dull reamer when it was being chambered, or maybe the chamber just needed a polishing. Either way, he was willing to work with me to get in the barrel, which I planned to do a few days later. But first, I had another match that I needed to attend with this rifle. So up next was the two-day match at the beautiful Milan Rifle and Pistol Club in Milan, Illinois. The match weekend was host to an 80-round across-the-course match on Saturday and a 3x600 match on Sunday. Perfect. I had a rifle that was working and I knew I had a hammer of a load ready, but I didn't know if my brass was going to work. So I took some of this unfired brass from a different lot to run in my rapid strings. I figured the unfired brass was the only stuff not giving me trouble. For the slow fire sessions, I'd just grunt through the sticky bolt and man up a little bit. Well, Saturday kicked off around 9am on Relay 1, and on Cider 1 I called a miss. <sighs> Whoa, what the heck just happened? Was that the yips? Was that my trigger finger going wonky in the cold weather? I just looked back at my scorekeeper and said, yeah, that's a miss. 
And sure enough, the target comes up. It was a miss at six o'clock. The next shot, click boom. You've got to be kidding me. Are we hang firing again? I have a new bolt, a new firing pin, a new barrel, a new cartridge. There's no way, right? Then it started happening again and again and again. Hang fires. They're back. This time it was back with a vengeance, like maniacal hang fires. I couldn't stand it. Out of an abundance of working the pit crew beyond ethical physical limits and my frustration, I discontinued the string after about number 14 or 15. It wasn't worth continuing on with that insane problem. I could have continued, but that is a problem you don't want to have in standing. It's like if you were in prone and every time you pulled the trigger, your scorekeeper tickled your neck. Nope, 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 nope. We are done here, Uncle Rick. After that second hang fire with the 6BR in standing, just like old used up and abused Jenny was to Forrest Gump, you died on a Saturday morning. I had you placed here under the tree. Mama always said dying was a part of life. I sure wish it wasn't. Great. Well, I figured I had already paid the gas money and hotel money, so I thought I'd finish out the match and just see if I could gather any more data for Gary and also see how that unfired brass ran in rapids. Well, the hang fires continued, but the sticky bolt stopped with the new brass, which I guess I had that going for me. The day was bad. 707 out of 800. 707 out of 800. Woof. The bright side of the day, uh, I guess, well, I had a great day working the pits and catching up with some old friends. I managed to squeak out a clean target at 600, and I miscounted my rapid prone string and did a four-shot, five-shot, one-shot magazine sequence, which was really funny to watch on my feedback video. My face was hilarious when I watched the magazine leave the magwell with one round still left in there. And also after dinner, we all got Lieutenant Dan ice cream. And I learned about semi-trucks, diesel engines, and turbos, information of which had promptly departed my brain shortly afterwards. Anyway, on to Sunday. But first, an email to Gary Alessio about the hangfires. I fired off a quick message to him after they crossed the course match on Saturday, and he promptly responded Saturday evening. He mentioned that Pierce Engineering had inspected my 223 bolt and had found some indications that there appeared to be some interference between the trigger sear and the bolt in the receiver. Retro. That's no longer a small fix. That is a box it up and send it kind of fix. Which I did. It's currently en route to Cottonwood, Arizona for a good once over. Barrel, receiver, bolt, everything except for the buttstock. Time to let the professionals do their thing. If UPS ever finds my package. I'm not sure why I attract weird things. A lot of weird things happened to me, like a weird lot of Reloader 15, a weird neck-turning cutter from Sinclair, a weird chamber, a weird trigger install. Let's just call this JP's Law, the one-off attraction to oddities. If a bald eagle heisted a three-carat diamond from a jeweler and flew 16 miles over my gunsmith's office and accidentally dropped the diamond on a CNC machine and changed the setting for one specific component that's getting put on my rifle, yeah, that's my life in a nutshell. Anyway, on to Sunday. 
Sunday was beautiful. Low 50s to start the day, and we finished in the 60s with a touch of a breeze pushing past from the right. Around 8 a.m., we all arrived on the 600-yard firing line, and after the construction company finished up building the F-Class staging and firing points area, the real men got to work. I had yet to shoot a 3x600 match with this rifle configured as it was. Last year I had it in 6BR with my White Oak Distinguished Rifleman scope installed, and it did really well. In fact, it scored me a first clean target at 600, but I had yet to shoot with a really high-powered scope and also shoot it while feeling really comfortable with the rifle like I was this year. So this Sunday, shooting through all the hang fires and semi-sticky brass, the Elysio gave me a 599 with 45x. I was shooting as fast as my pit crew would let me, and they were giving me great service downrange, so I was really thankful. I knew this rifle was accurate, but I didn't realize exactly how accurate it was at 600. It seemed like wherever I broke the shot, if I broke it where I wanted to, the bullet would be promptly delivered to that spot. Special shout out to my buddy Mark, who was also shooting an Elysio 6BR with a similar load, who was absolutely destroying the X and 10 ring all day. This weekend really gave me a lot of confidence in the rifle and the 6BR cartridge. We just need to get a few things uh, ironed out for next fall. As a suggested experiment from one of the 6BR Mafia members, I was told to take a few of my resized and still sticky cases and see if they would fit another 6BR shooter's chamber without resistance. Sure enough, I provided about eight cases to my friend Mark and his Elysio 6BR, and only two of them were sticky. Good to know. And shout out to my man Liam for winning the 2023 Fall Classic across the course match on Saturday, doing the Lord's work with his service rifle. And just like that, the Elysio was boxed up and we're back to service rifle. Lesson learned. So that's the weekend in a nutshell. But like I said, back to service rifle. I had one last local match on the calendar, which was my Tuesday night league match. I decided to round up the remaining ammo from Camp Perry, strap on a massive Night Force scope, and put on a new sling from Jack Jones and get back to experiment mode. It was one of those beautiful days where the temperature was just perfect. Not too cold, not too hot. Just one of those days where you think you don't need to shower when you get home from the range, but later realize that maybe that was a bad choice at 3.45 a.m. when you can smell yourself in bed. As my friend Jimmy said... One of those great days where you don't even sweat in the pits. I'm sure he meant armpits because we were shooting on electronic targets. I'll keep this one brief, but I was hoping to see, using that big scope, what my hold really looks like and see if I can make some tweaks to improve it. I really struggle with that 4.5 power scope. I think everyone wants a little bit more power, obviously, but I feel like I struggle at the 600-yard line because... I hear a lot of people say that they can see the scoring rings at 600 and the dots line up with the X-ring and away they go, but not so much on my end. I struggle to see anything except for a black and somewhat gray blur, even when I mess with the focus or parallax. But with the Night Force, game on. Now I got this idea after watching Conrad Powers shooting service rifle with a higher powered scope for a few matches when I was young and more impressionable. I was newer to high power at the time, and I asked him why he was using such a high-powered scope. He responded that he was learning. He was learning about his hold, his position, and, and whatever else he was looking for at the time. I don't exactly remember, but 
he was able to see in more detail what was going on downrange so he could tackle some of these imperfections. Pretty genius. I figured I'd give it a shot for at least one match and see if it was worth exploring in the future. And spoiler alert, it was worth it. Here's just a few things I picked up on. I learned my prone position was far more stable than I originally thought. I had the sling a notch tighter than normal, and yes, my hand fell asleep multiple times, but my hold was actually far sturdier than my match rifle. Hopefully that'll be repeatable in the future. I also noticed that how I manipulate the trigger in prone affects which direction the rifle moves as the trigger breaks. I know we all know this, but this was nice to see. In prep, I saw that as I pulled the trigger, the rifle would twitch from a centered shot to a 6 o'clock 8 or 9. Well, that's not good. I've seen that before and knew that it was trigger related. The fix for it, however, was not so apparent to me. I shifted my trigger hand around in order to change the squeeze direction of the trigger. I changed the amount of grip tightness I had on the hand grip, and I also moved the trigger shoe around on my trigger finger to see if I could eliminate it. In the end, I did get it taken care of, but I also found that certain combinations would move the direction of the twitch at the trigger break. I saw a 6 o'clock movement, a 9 o'clock movement, a 4 o'clock movement, and a 3 o'clock movement. While I couldn't exactly pinpoint which direction was relative to each change I made, I learned which positions did not work. That will take some more playing around with later on in practice or in the offseason. And with the addition of the DFAT dry firing reducer, I'll have a much easier time dry firing indoors to work on it. Although I felt like I was cheating with the Hubble telescope on the top of the service rifle, I learned quite a bit about what I need to learn about, gained some more confidence in my rifle's ability for accuracy, and left the range without that discouragement that I had been feeling with the service rifle for a majority of this year. 7.95 with 43x to finish out the last match of the season for my Tuesday night league matches. I'll take that one with open arms. And now, a quick word from our sponsors. Today's episode is brought to you by our dear friends over at Ossenfinger Labs and their new F-Class cooling fan. Designed to keep the hard-working, Heavy lifting, extreme condition bucking F-Class shooter cool in all conditions, the Austin Finger Labs F-Class fan is your source for comfort. Are your shorts, t-shirt, and flip-flops not keeping you cool enough under your pop-up firing line tent? Check out the new F-Class fan. Designed with comfort as a priority, the F-Class fan features three speeds and a sturdy tripod base. Don't want to accidentally nudge your rest that's been nailed into the earth with a hammer? No problem, we've got you covered. The F-Class fan can be attached to our proprietary nail-in fan rest, which features either a 6-inch or 8-inch adjustment joystick for your ease and comfort. Trust Finger Labs to impress your friends at the range with more stuff that you bought. Check out the F-Class fan, available only at Finger Labs' online store. Hey, why not a new segment, but this time suggested by a listener. I hope this one catches on for a bit because it's kind of cool. A few weeks ago, I received a suggestion from my friend Dave out west. Dave mentioned that a cool segment idea might be, what's in your cart? Kind of a cool idea. What's useful, what isn't? 
I think it's a great topic to chat about and might also highlight some unturned stones for others that might have not considered these items before. Here's the cool part. You get to share what's in your cart. Some of it might get a little repetitive over time, and obviously everybody has the shooting glove and the magazines and so on and so forth, so I might start to truncate these as they come along, but there's always something nifty hiding in those carts that are here for good reasons. So with that, I'm going to let Dave out west kick off this week's What's in Your Cart. Dave writes, I carry enough ammo to shoot another match, enough parts to build another rifle, minus stock, barrel, receivers, and scope, a cleaning rod, cleaning supplies, and a few tools. What's useful? Probably none of it other than loaning it out at times. Yep. I've never needed any of these parts other than to help out other competitors. Ammo is necessary to shoot an alibi, but I don't really need the 80 plus rounds that I carry. Good to shoot up every now and then and keep the brass cycled and the powder bullets and primer lots come close to what I'm shooting so there's no change in zeros. I guess it's just the former race car mechanic in me. Take enough parts to build another race car between the trophy dash and the main event. End quote. Man, that is a man who is your best friend at the range when things go wrong. We all know the cleaning rod can be the difference between having kind of a bad day and having an early departure from the range. Well, that's a given. Tools are obviously a must. I've been there. I've done a full scope swap out at the 300 yard line before. Couldn't have done it without the necessary tools. And parts? Yeah, I have no argument there, especially if they're kept in a nice little isolated part of your cart or in a safe box or something to keep them out of the elements. Great call. I've seen a full trigger removal at the range between a few guys, and while thankfully they didn't have to replace the trigger, it would have been nice knowing that you had that one in your back pocket should you need it. And how about that ammo? Great call there as well. Dave keeps 80 plus rounds, which he feels is a bit much, but to each their own. He will never run out of alibi ammo, and if a massive storm or range alibi stops a slow fire string, he's good to go. Personally, I try to carry as little ammo as possible, but that's just me being a stingy cheap ass. Maybe 22 rounds of 600 yard line rounds and 12 rounds of short range. Maybe if it's a bigger profile match, I'll maybe double the short range alibi ammo, but I don't overdo it. At Perry, however, all hands are on deck though. Personal choice here, most of my unused alibi stuff ends up in the end of the year pile anyway. So now I get to ask you the question, what's in your cart? What's useful and what's not? Let me know what you have. Hopefully I can get a backlog of these to share over time. Reach out to me, jp at hphpodcast.com. I'm looking forward to hearing from you. All right, guys and gals, that's about all I have time for today. Sadly, this season got cut short, aggressively short, like very aggressively. Originally, we were planning on hopping down to the Talladega Southern 600 at the beginning of November, but between my work and another scheduling conflict, it looks like that's going to have to maybe wait till next year. And the match that I've been looking forward to for the last few months looks like it's probably not going to happen. The monthly match at Dead Zero in Spencer, Tennessee looks like it might be in question, so I'm going to tread lightly with that one. I might still go check out that range anyway. Considering it might be a new home range in the future, I'm curious if it's a good setup for across the course practice and testing. I'm looking forward to seeing what it has to offer and reporting back when I do. So as it stands now, it'll be a few weeks off unless I get the chance to catch up on an informal league match or practice session here or there. But the goodies will continue. The Elysio saga continues. 
The listener feedback continues, and hopefully I can get an episode out in the next two or three weeks with some fun little nuggets. If you want to weigh in on something, let me know what's in your cart or give a shooter shout out or maybe just drop a friendly hello. Please do so. I look forward to those. I can be reached via email at jp at hphpodcast.com, jp at hphpodcast.com. That's HPH for the High Power Hangout. Remember to make every single shot count. I'll see you on the next one.